Okay, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine. Uh, Solidar, uh, the Ministry of Defense actually has officially said that Solidar is uh, under the control of the Russian um, uh, military. So we, we have the first official statement from the Russian Ministry of uh, Defense. There's a lot of talk about an operational encirclement of uh, Bakhmut, though um, there's been a lot of uh, analysis which has said, no, that is not the... Uh, that is not the case just yet. I've heard somewhere along the lines of uh, two of the three roads leading into Bakhmut are under um, operational control of the Russian military, but there's still one more road. Uh, anyway, these are details. Uh, the, the point is, is that Bakhmut is, is the, the grip that the Russians are, are, are placing on Bakhmut is, is tightening. So I think that's... You know, there's, the, the Russians are, are, are advancing and making uh, more gains in Bakhmut. That's, that's the basic trajectory of things. We have a statement from the Biden White House, which is saying, as we, uh, as we predicted, which is saying that, you know, Solidar and Bakhmut, it's really not that important. You know, Kirby came out and said, it's really, a, it's really not that much of a strategic, uh, of strategic value, these... Uh, these are settlements. And uh, what else do we have? Um, I think that covers everything on the ground. I'm trying to think if we have anything from the economic side of things. Ah, something that you may be interested in talking about maybe in the second half of this video is how the EU is going to go about seizing assets and how they're going to frame it, uh, how they're going to get past international law seizing the assets, seizing Russian assets. Estonia is going to be the first case. Uh, to uh, to take a crack at it, and it's interesting because you know it doesn't sound like it's too above board, but you know we're talking. About <laughs> so anyway, uh, let's start with on the you know, let's start with on the ground, and then we'll move over to to what's going on on the economic political side of things. Well, you you've described the situation on the ground, I think, fairly fairly well and very very well and very clearly. Now, Solidar has been captured by. The Russians. The Russian Ministry of Defense has published a statement. It's a long statement, by the way, giving quite a lot of uh, accounts of how it was captured. We don't need to go into those sort of details. It has been captured. Now, as of yesterday, there were still some Ukrainian stragglers fighting on there. That gave Zelensky and his officials um, grounds to pretend that fighting was still going on in the town. Um, but as I understand it, that's pretty much all been mopped up now. And there isn't any effective or organized Ukrainian defense in, Bach, in Solidar. Now, what we did get yesterday, and apparently over the course of last night, was at least three Ukrainian attempts to recapture Solidar. Now, Kirby says Solidar isn't important Clearly, the Ukrainians think otherwise because they try to recapture it. I mean, that doesn't seem as if it's such an unimportant place. Why it is important, we will discuss in a moment. But clearly they did. And I mean, when I say they tried to recapture it, this is confirmed both from Ukrainian sources and Russian sources. So clearly an attempt was made to recapture Solidar. It failed. All of these attacks failed. They 
uh, resulted in the Ukrainians suffering heavy losses. We're getting the usual rumors about arguments between Zaluzny, the commander, the army commander, and Zelensky about whether or not they should launch more attacks and what they should do. But anyway, Solidar overall under Russian control. We've been getting more reports this morning that the Russians, the Wagner organization, are pushing out, pushing from Solidar. They're now taking places like Sol, the Sol railway station, which is just outside Solidar. And, you know, the salt railway station, this is an area which, as we know, produces lots of salt. The Ukrainian troops, some of them, retreated to this railway station. Apparently, it's in the process of being stormed. More importantly, the Wagner organization troops and apparently Russian paratroopers are in the process of storming two villages immediately to the, to the north of Bakhmut. Um, west of Solidar, north of Bakhmut, um, and these two villages are astride the main road leading into Bakhmut from the north. So the Russians control already all the roads leading into Bakhmut from the east. They, they look like they're very soon going to capture the roads leading into Bakhmut from the north and connecting Bakhmut to a place called Siversk, which we've discussed in the past, by the way. It's another Ukrainian, another another town which the Ukrainians are have fortified and which is part of their defense line in Donbass. And it's said that if Ukraine loses control of this road, then the garrison that's holding out in Siversk is going to become, it, it, its position is going to become untenable. And yesterday, or rather the day before yesterday, but it was confirmed yesterday, um, confirmation also came through that another village called Opitnoye, south of Bakhmut, has also been captured. And Opitnoye sits on top of, it's astride, the main, a road leading into Bakhmut from the south. So coming back to what you were saying, Roads to the north about to be cut by the Russians. Roads to the from east, from the east, already controlled by the Russians. Russians now control the road into Bakhmut from the south. That means that the Russians control three, you know, the north, south and eastern access points into Bakhmut. There's one remaining road which goes into Bakhmut from the west. That's that passes through a village called Ivanovka. And the Russians are said to be very close to Ivanovka. And if that road is captured, then the Ukrainian troops, two brigades apparently, that are still fighting inside Bakhmut, are trapped. So that's that's where the story about the encirclement comes from. These are reports made by various people, you know, mainly from the government of the Donetsk People's Republic. They are premature. They're getting ahead of themselves. But we are coming very close to that position now. And the question is, well, what are the Ukrainians going to do? Are they going to try and counterattack, continue counterattacks, trying to drive the Russians back from these roads? It's looking increasingly unlikely that that can succeed. It's going to cause heavy losses. Are they going to try and keep their troops in Bakhmut? 
and risk having them trapped there? Or are they eventually going to pull out? And, well, we'll see what they're going to do. But at the moment, for the time being, the Ukrainians are counterattacking. They're trying to cling on to Bakhmut. They're trying to, as I said, launch attacks to try to retake Solidar, hopeless attacks. Nearly everybody agrees. And frankly, what they're doing is playing directly into Russian hands because it means that more troops, more Ukrainian troops are being thrown in, reinforcing what is increasingly looking like a failure and turning what is already a failure into a disaster. Okay, so the question is why? Why, are they, why do they continue to do this when they should have they should have pulled out months ago? Yes. I mean, it, it was inevitable what was going to happen in, in Bakhmut. Yeah. So, so why do they continue to do this? That's, that's the question. That is an excellent question. It's one I, I find very difficult myself to answer. Now, and I, it's not just us asking this question. We're starting to see other people ask that question too. So CNN they had an interview by telephone with a Ukrainian soldier who's fought in Solidar. And he said, you know, we suffered extraordinary losses fighting in Solidar. We stopped counting the dead. It became impossible to count the dead. Most of the professional soldiers in his unit had been killed. They'd been replaced by conscripts and the survivability of these unhappy souls is very short. And he said, you know, we are going to lose Solidar anyway. This is an interview presumably conducted two or three days ago before Solidar had been fully stormed. But the soldier said, we're going to lose Solidar anyway. And many of the soldiers there are asking, why in that case are we still dying to defend it? Because it makes no sense. And there's now been another article in the Wall Street Journal, a rather more authoritative article, in which you know they are there are all kinds of unnamed experts coming along and saying that this is really isn't making any sense. Ukraine ought to pull back from Bakhmut. They should ought to try and find other defensive lines to the west of Bakhmut. They're throwing away huge numbers of men trying to hold on to Bakhmut. There was a rather sardonic reference to Leonidas and Thermopylae, but implication being that Bakhmut is not Thermopylae, and it doesn't make any sense to make that kind of analogy. So why are the Ukrainians doing this? And it's, I, I find it very difficult to come up with a simple and straightforward explanation to this. I think that amateurism at the highest level of the Ukrainian command, probably plays a role. I think that Zelensky plays a very big role in decision-making, as we've discussed many times. He's mostly about PR. He's not really about uh, you know, making decisions that are based on military things. He doesn't want to be seen retreating. He still, perhaps he's bought in too much into this narrative of victory. You know, people who create a narrative an artificial narrative about Ukrainian success. They become trapped inside it. Maybe there's an element of that. But there's another probable reason, and I think this is probably the key one. 
which is that the Ukrainians are fighting for Bakhmut and Solidar because they're being told to, that their masters in Washington and London and Brussels are telling them that you mustn't retreat. We're in this very complicated position at the moment. We're trying to put together arms packages, Leopard 2 tanks and all that sort of thing. We have to overcome the doubters. Apparently, the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD, is starting to rebel against all these arms transfers to Ukraine. So you've got to give this appearance that you're fighting and fighting determinedly to the last man, even if that means that large numbers of your people are dying in Bakhmut. And by the way, the casualty figures that you know i'm starting to see about the numbers of men that have been lost in this battle by ukraine are simply horrific there was a ukrainian source that said that 14 battalions had been wiped out defending bakhmut other Others put it much higher than that. And I'm seeing other reports, other claims maybe, I should say that they're claims rather than reports, that Ukraine has lost many more men in Bakhmut and Solidar over the last few months than died over the entire course of the Kherson offensive. So, I mean, that gives you some idea, just these two small places, relatively small places, and hundreds probably thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, who knows how many, of people are dying, getting wounded, traumatized to hold these places for some reason that is very difficult to understand. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you thought this was more of a a political um, reason rather than, than a military one. But, I mean, you answered that because... You know, you basically said that uh, Alensky doesn't want want it to be seen as if the Ukraine military is retreating. And, you know, your your assessment is that the forces that control control Zelensky have told him that they don't want want it to seem like Ukraine military is retreating and they don't want this uh, this to to get out because, yeah, they're talking about a lot of tanks talking about a lot of weapons they're talking about more money and uh, they don't want the people in the uh, in the collective west in the United States and in Europe to to see that that they are losing exactly. they are losing Donbass they are losing uh, Solidar Bakhmut and uh, they might just question the the whole Ukraine project if they see this and, and they have another problem which I want to uh, to get to which is that the the Ukraine military seems to be in a bit of a panic as to where the Russians are going to uh, strike next. They're panicked about missiles and drones and infrastructure, rightfully so, given what we've seen the Russians do over the past couple of months. They're panicked at the fact that Sudovikin now is going to be uh, focusing a lot more on uh, on the. Uh, on the Air Force uh, side of things. And uh, and they're panicked at Belarus. And they're actually moving uh, resources and and uh, personnel to the north in that direction yes. as well. And they're fortifying Kiev. So there's just a general 
panic that is gripping the uh, the Ukraine military, NATO, and uh, and the collective West. And we, we we talked about this on our live stream the other day with Larry Johnson, that the Russians, in my opinion, the Russian military has been masterful in preserving its uh, fighting forces, even with such heavy fighting in Bakhmut and Solodar, uh, the, the Wagner uh, forces, they did most of the heavy lifting, if not all of the heavy lifting in certain villages. Yeah. And so you have three, four, five hundred thousand strong Russian military you know, just waiting in the wings. And if you're Ukraine, you're kind of saying to yourself, what do we do? We're bogged down in Bakhmut. We're bogged down in, in this Bakhmut Solidar uh, region. But we've got 500, 400, 500, 600,000 Russian uh, uh, military, which could be hitting us from the north. There's talk about submarines and, and the possible move towards, uh, towards Odessa. You know, you don't know where it's going to come from. It could be coming from, from the air and from missiles, or it could be all three, all four. Who knows? I mean, this is... That is, I know, this, this, is, is, exact, for, this is This is very bad, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, the Russians now have completely regained or gained the strategic initiative. They're keeping everybody guessing. Uh, I should add that just to, you know... Increase perhaps the panic in Kiev even more. Um, a, a Russian general, General Selyukov, has just visited the the Russian grouping in Belarus, which is growing in size and military power all the time. Now, the important point, important point about him is that he is the commander in chief of the ground forces. The, you know the 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 Russian infantry and art, and artillery and tank forces, the Sadukov commands, the aerospace forces, the aircraft, all of those sort of things. Now, the the other thing to understand about Sadukov is that he is also, alongside Surovikin, one of the three deputies who are directly subordinated to the man who is now the overall commander in chief of the Russian forces in Ukraine, who's General Gerasimov. So you see that the deputy commander of the Russian forces who are involved in this war has now visited the U Russian grouping in Belarus. Now, what does that mean? Of course, we don't really know. Does it mean that the Russians are intending to advance south from Belarus into Ukraine? The U.S., denies it. They say they've seen no evidence of that. But how do we actually know? How do they actually know? And we're seeing this enormous buildup, as you see, taking place on every front. And this is, to be very clear, uh, I mean, on an order of magnitude greater than anything we've seen before. Not just hundreds of thousands of troops being deployed, but hundreds of tanks. I read a report, by the way, somewhere that the one Russian tank factory is capable of building a thousand tanks a year. And that's, you know, so I mean, there's clearly no difficulty churning out tanks. And a lot of these new tanks that we've been seeing, these T90s, are apparently new, new build tanks, and they're pouring in tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, ammunition, artillery pieces, and it's building up on an enormous scale. And you're quite right, fighting in Donbass. That's been taking place again over the last couple of weeks has almost entirely been the work of two 
bodies that are not part of, if you like, the regular Russian army. One is the Wagner organization and the other is the Donbass militia. The main force of the Russian army, which is now building up in extraordinary numbers, hasn't yet been committed to the battle to any great degree extent. And I think everybody expects that some big blow is coming. Nobody knows for sure where it's going to fall. I don't know. The Russians have managed again to keep it all extraordinarily secret. Their discipline here <laughs> has been remarkable, if you actually, I mean, you know, given that, you know, there must be all kinds of conferences and discussions going on all the time within the Russian military as they prepare for their next move. But we don't, nobody knows what they're going to do. But what we can see is these vast numbers of forces gathering around Ukraine. The Ukrainians are obviously panicking. And again, I, I do think that part of the reason, as I said, why they're clinging on to Bakhmut so determinedly is because at some level, Perhaps they're saying to themselves, if we can't even hold Bakhmut, where the only people we're fighting are the Wagner group and its uh, private fighters, many of whom are you know, ex-convicts, what chance do we have against the regular Russian army, which is now coming towards us across the horizon? So there may be some element of that there, too. So, I mean, you know, but. That's that's how things are shaping. It's looking as if something is going to hit on a huge scale. Um, you know, I don't know what shape that is going to be. I don't know where the big strike is going to come from. Uh, the British Ministry of Defence thinks that it will be towards Kupiansk and Izium uh, along the Oskol River line you know, in Kharkov region, where Ukraine had its Kharkov offensive back in um, September. Well, maybe it'll be there. Others say it'll be from Zaporozhye. Who knows? Maybe it'll be there too. Nobody knows for sure. All that we can say is that this enormous build-up is taking place. Does the, uh, does the fact that the EU is now making their move after months of, of dithering around and trying to find some loopholes? Does the fact that they're now making their move to seize assets, do you think that's an indication that, uh, that the collective West at the European Union sees that uh, we may be at the beginning of some sort of conclusion? I'm not saying that's the case, but maybe we're at the beginning of what could be the, the last couple of chapters in the uh, the conflict in Ukraine. And so they're saying, you know, now we have to make our move on these Russian assets. In a word, yes. In a year's time or in two years time, maybe we're not going to have the, the latitude. We may not even be in power to uh, to, to take these assets or to benefit from yeah. the uh, from the washing of these assets. Absolutely. And of course, the other point to make is that there is a PR dimension to it as well. We've spent all these hundreds of billions of dollars sustaining Ukraine, or so we say. So, you know, 
if we seize all these Russian assets, well, we can go around and say to everybody, well, look, it didn't actually cost us anything because we got all these assets, assets instead. And, you know, we can set off the one against the other. So, I mean, I think that is actually providing some um, energy to this. But, you know, we said you said at the start of the video that we should discuss it. And you're absolutely correct. We're now seeing this happen. Estonia has clearly been allocated the role of leading the charge on this. It's an interesting choice, by the way. And it shows that the big countries, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, Britain. Britain, of course, isn't in the EU, but it's part of the same thing. They're still at some level, trying to overcome their inhibitions before they take the plunge. So they want little Estonia to go out first, to be the first one to do it. So, you know, if there's any repercussions, well, it'll be Estonia's fault, <laughs> which is really, I mean, you know, it, it's as cynical, in my opinion, as that. But that, that's, that's what they're cranking up to do. And we can see that part of the thinking here the, the, the way they're going to justify it is by claiming that the Russians have committed war crimes. They're going to try and set up some kind of war crimes tribunal. It looks, it's starting to look as if the attempt to do so through the UN has run into the ground. I mean, I'm not absolutely sure about that, but there was some talk way back in the autumn, a long time ago, weeks ago, about getting a UN General Assembly vote to authorize the setting up of some kind of tribunal. That hasn't yet happened, so there may be some difficulties there. Increasingly, it's looking like it's going to be an EU thing. So they're going to set up their own war crimes tribunal. They're going to convict or, or act to convict the Russians of committing war crimes in Ukraine. They have no jurisdiction to set up such a tribunal, by the way, nor for, for the record does the General Assembly. But put that aside. But looks like that's what they're going to do. And they're going to use that as providing the legal justification for seizing all of these Russian assets, which to be very, very clear, it does not. It's still a massive violation of international law. Setting up an EU war crimes tribunal also violates, in my opinion, in my own personal opinion, international law. You're just coming up with legal expedients which compound the illegality of your actions. But as we've discussed on previous occasions, we're far past the point with the EU in which that kind of thing, the illegality of your actions, prevents you from doing that which you want to do. No. The money's too much, and, and they no. want to get their hands on it, period. Agreed. No. Uh, they can't see all those billions sitting there, and, and they, they have to get it. Absolutely. The, the so, what's the blowback from this? Well, what's the blowback from this? Is very, yeah, uh, I mean, well, I mean, the law is absolutely clear here. I mean, they can't do this, and of yeah. course, as I said, but uh, what is the blowback? The blowback is that if you're MBS, if you're an Indian billionaire, remember, India has often had edgy relations with the EU. If you're in Pakistan and you're a very rich man in Pakistan, if you're in Africa, if you're in Latin America, you don't keep your money in a G7 state. <laughs> Why would you? Why would governments, foreign governments now, global south governments, store their 
funds, their reserves, their foreign exchange reserves in Western depositories in, you know, New York or London or Frankfurt. And because there's a real danger that it might be seized. And the next thing you're going to do is if you're a global south government, you're going to say to yourself, is it really wise for me to keep my reserves in dollars? And is it really wise for me to keep my reserves in euros? Because the West could act at any time to freeze and seize those and to prevent me using my reserves. And all right, once upon a time, you could have got away with it because in you know, the dollar is the reserve currency. The euro is one of the world's hard currencies. There wasn't really any alternative to holding those currencies. And there weren't any secure depositories where you could put your money in. But of course, there are now. There's alternative currency systems starting to appear. The Russian central bank is now buying RMB, for example, Chinese currency. Um, there are possible depositories in all sorts of places. Uh, so all, all of this is now starting to accumulate and it's going to create more and more doubts, more and more fears. And we're going to see the acceleration in movements, in the movement towards um, a collapse of the Western financial system, the Western-based financial system, which, to be very clear, the only reason people use it is because they assume it is underpinned by law. It's no longer underpinned by law. Why should they trust it? Well, someone can, can make the argument to you and say, OK, Alexander, I understand that, but the the collective West, the leaders in, in D.C. and uh, in Brussels, they're going to go to someone like, I don't know, MBS, let's just say MBS. They're going to go to MBS and they're going to say, no, 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 uh, MBS, no, no need to worry about all your billions and, and all your assets, which are parked in, in, uh, in New York and in London and Frankfurt. Don't worry about it. This is a special case because of the horrendous thing that Russia has done, and 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 believe us, it's this is just a one-time thing that we're doing because of these uh, these the circumstances that you know we we had to do something because of of the situation of this of this Russian invasion into Ukraine. What we're doing now is 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 n there's no way it's going to ever happen to your money and to your assets. So don't worry about it. You still have the the law of the collective West that you can uh, fall back on. Yeah, this I mean, is I'm just sure. specific to the Russians. Yeah, I I'm sure they're saying that. I'm sure they're saying that to MBS and people like him as we speak. I'm sure there's all sorts of you know emissaries from the West, from the central banks, coming along saying, "Don't worry, this is fine. This is an exception. This is never going to happen again." There's no conceivable way that we we could do this to you. Would MBS trust them? 
let's talk about MBS. I mean, just a few years ago, the West had a massive media campaign against him because of the Khashoggi affair. <laughs> I mean, just, just one example. I mean, this is, this is just MBS now. Um, if you're talking about uh, Modi, who was, you know, the prime minister of India. Again, it's not so long ago. He will remember it when he was being denied a visa to go to the United States because of his supposed involvement in a communal uh, uh, incident. I mean, there's been just too many cases of this to make it convincing any longer that this is just an exception. Um, This is the exception that has made the rule. If the West can do this to the Russians who are you know, a major power in the world, of course they can do it to other people, and of course they will. And that's what people are going to say. Why should I trust your word when your law has been shown to be not good? It's as if the West hasn't broken its word too many times by now. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to ask you that. And final question to wrap it up. Do the Russians and the Chinese, do they contact people like MBS? And do they say, because at the end of the day, the Chinese are also saying, you know what? This is business for us. If we can get this guy's money and assets parked with us, it's good for our banks. It's good for for us as well. So do they come along to MBS? And we're using MBS now as an example here, but they go to MBS and they say, yeah, MBS, I know that, uh, that that Blinken's been calling you and he's been giving you all of these assurances and Lagarde, Lagarde's been calling you and giving you all these assurances. But, um, you know, Maduro, the gold, have they given that back? Do, do, they, do they make a counter argument to, to MBS and say, look, you're safer with us because they're saying it's only Russia, but look, they did it to Venezuela and they did it to these guys and these guys and Modi and all these guys that... They've, they've done it too. So why should you believe their, uh, their word? Absolutely. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they're saying that as well. And they're making the point to people like MBS. And you're quite right. We're just plucking MBS. But he's an obvious example. They say to him, look, we believe in and support international law. That's what we're talking about all of the time. The West now doesn't even talk about international law. They talk about this rules-based international order. We've asked them what the rules are, and they've never given us any idea of what these rules are. Nobody even knows what the rules are anymore. You can trust us because we don't preach to you. We don't lecture you. We don't... you know, come up with arrest warrants for you or threaten you with arrest warrants. We have always treated you straight. So whom do you prefer at the end of the day? The, the, the West, who's acted in the way that you know, or us, who's always played with you straight? Now, we understand that once upon a time, There was no option. You had to put your money in New York or London because, frankly, that was the only game in town. But now we are able to do we are able to provide you with all the same things that the West provides. And if you want to come along and do your shopping, well, you're welcome to do it in Shanghai. All right. Any uh, final thoughts before we wrap this video up? No, I, 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 I think we are, we are, as I said at the beginning of 
maybe not the end, but of uh, you know an important you know the, the, well let's put it like this we're at an inflection point i think even the americans by the way have admitted that i mean uh, biden interesting comment that he made a couple of about a week ago in a in a cabinet meeting that you know that the 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 war in ukraine has reached a critical point and i think we can see that we can see how ephemeral all those ukrainian victories have turned out to be. And again, it's important to remember that in Kharkov, the Russians pulled out. There was an actual retreat by the Russian army from Kharkov when the Ukrainians marched in. There, there wasn't the kind of battle that we've seen in Solidar and in Bakhmut. And the same applies to the fighting in Kherson region. It was a Russian pullback from Kherson region. In Bakhmut, in Solidar, there's been a real battle, a really intense, brutal battle, and the Ukrainians are losing big. All right, we will end it there. Uh, Duran.locals.com. Look for us on Rockfin as well, and go to the Duran shop, 10% off. Use the code, good day. Take care.